Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Devin, I'm an alcoholic, and I better just clarify, women's recovery uh, meeting is in Middle Park, I uh, attend that meeting, wasn't you, it was me when I rushed in, and uh, that meets on a Saturday morning at 10.30, very good meeting. My home group is the Women in Recovery meeting at Yarraville, which meets on a Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock. So that's also a great meeting. Okay, well, like Robert said, it's a privilege and an honour to be here to share on step one. I got a bit of a shock when I walked in this morning and saw so many people. I caught the train and um, uh, my train was uh, cancelled, so I had to get on a bus, I had to find this bus stop and get on a bus and catch a bus to the nearest station where the trains were um, running from, so I thought, <laughs> oh, nobody's going to be there this early in the morning, it was such a, um, a busy start. Anyway, it's appropriate that uh, I get asked to speak on step one because I, um, I had to study this step for six years before I actually understood it and got it. Um, like Robert was sharing about um, needing to get the message properly or, you know, and not getting the message. That's part of my story. That's part of my journey. So step one is um, pivotal to my sobriety and... Um, you know, I just, I just didn't get it when I first came in. I thought I did. Thought I got steps one, two, and three really quickly, and um, proceeded to look at step four and five and go, "Oh, I don't want to do those." Um, and so, I never worked the program properly. Initially, I was able to achieve 22 months of sobriety. Um, <clears throat> but I want to read a quote from the 12 and 12 that actually uh, epitomises that sobriety that I had in that first 22 months. It says, it's from page 21 on step 1, and it says, we know that little good can come to any alcoholic who joins AA unless he has first accepted his devastating weakness and all its consequences. Until he so humbles himself, his sobriety, if any, will be precarious. Of real happiness, he will find none at all. Proved beyond doubt by an immense experience, this is one of the facts of AA life. The principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is the main taproot from which our whole society has sprung and flowered. And that's true of the way my journey began. And, um, you know, I, I think that when I first came in, I 
I felt that I definitely knew that my drinking was a problem. It was causing devastation in my personal life and that I couldn't, I couldn't decide how much I was going to drink and stick to it. Um, which of course means, um, I couldn't control my drinking. Um, and so, and also I was suffering physical effects of alcoholism. And, um, and I think when I first came in, I really mostly wanted to get rid of those and I wanted to feel well and I wanted to fix up my family life. So I came in and I thought that just by stopping drinking, that, that would work for me. And it did. You know, my life got better. But <clears throat> I had a I had a sponsor for some amount of time, a short, you know, or maybe ten months, and then she probably got frustrated because of my because I wasn't willing to to work the program properly, um, and then so I thought, well, I don't really need a sponsor. This is working. You know, I'm feeling much better. My home life's better. My relationship with my kids is better. I don't have horrible hangovers when I go to work. This is good. I'm going well. So I just kept going. And I um, I went to meetings um, about once a week. If something happened in my um, work or my home life and I missed a meeting that week, then I wouldn't go to a meeting for two weeks. I think you can get the picture of how I was probably headed for trouble um, <clears throat> the way I first, that very first time I picked up a drink again was that, uh, that twist of, um, thought that they refer to in the big book. I was at a, um, work function. I had, I was in a works, a workplace where I'd never had a drink. And a colleague said to me, how come you never drink? You look like you'd be a drinker. <laughs> Somehow I think people, you know, still recognise it in us. And I said, oh, I just, I just don't drink, you know, it doesn't agree with me. And um, she uh, pursued it. And till it, and, and I, you know, I was like, Peter about Jesus, I denied my alcoholism, you know, four or five times um, because she said, are you an alcoholic? And uh, I said, no, no, I just don't drink. I mean, no, uh, normal people can say that and other people accept it, but it didn't work for me. So, uh, you know, I let it continue to the point where she's had half a glass of wine in front of me. And um, I looked at it and looked at it and uh, I thought, well, I bet I could just take a taste of this wine, go back to AA tomorrow and everything will be fine. And I did and that was a half of a tinsy little glass and I drank half of that. You know, and that night when I went home I was patting myself on the back Look at that. You know, you only drank that little bit. You could have just scoffed that. 
scoffed that down, had another ten glasses and really made a deal of yourself. I woke up the next morning when I was going to be going back to AA and it was a Saturday morning and I'm thinking, I don't reckon I am an alcoholic. Look at that. No, an alcoholic can't drink like I did last night. This is the disease. This is what happens. And so I just thought, okay, I reckon I can control my drinking. And I just won't ever have a wine cask in the fridge again. And, you know, for two weeks I drank moderately. Another one of my things was I was never going to drink alone. And I, for say one week, I drank only with other people and moderately. For another week, I drank alone but never from a wine cask, only from bottles and good bottles. And then after two weeks, the wine cask appeared miraculously in the fridge. And we all know the rest of that story. And so it went. took me a year to get back. And then... You know, I went back to Alcoholics Anonymous, did steps one, two, and three, and stopped. And I didn't drink for ten months, and I got better, and things, um, you know, improved. And then it was the millennium. And so, you know, that twist of thought happened, and I could just have a drink on that New Year's Eve of the millennium, and, you know, it'll be a hundred years before I drink again. <laughs> and off I went. And that time, you know, ten months in and um, it was, you know, maybe 13, 14 months out. And then in and out. And the times in AA got shorter, the times out of AA got longer. And to, it, I remember at one point where I didn't drink for three months and I did not go to a meeting. I did not attend Alcoholics Anonymous. I just white-knuckled it. because, And I never, ever went to meetings when I was drinking, only when I wasn't. And I guess for that three months I wasn't sure that I wouldn't be drinking, you know, at any point. And, of course, I did pick up. And so my story is, or my recovery is very much based on that idea that you must have step one. You must admit powerlessness over alcohol. You must admit the unmanageability of your life. Part of my not admitting my unmanageability was that I still had a job. I still had my sons. I I bought a home and was able to keep that. I, you know, I had a car. I had the trappings of a successful life. But behind all that facade was this woman in her kitchen drinking from a wine cask till all hours of the night and getting up the next morning shockingly hungover and going off to work and applying for senior positions in my job, which I wasn't getting, and then getting getting so um, angry and resentful about that that I drank more, so therefore couldn't go... couldn't get those jobs, you know, it was just the most vicious circle. I was like this, this mouse on this wheel running round and round and round. Um, and it wasn't until I actually, um, I went on a holiday with my son, my younger son, who at that point was about, uh, was 10, 
And we went to Queensland for three weeks, driving up and staying up there and going to all those theme parks and then driving home. And my drinking was so exposed. He hated my drinking by that time. He just hated it. And as soon as I started drinking, he would disappear. And he couldn't disappear. And I could not drink, even though I vowed that I wouldn't. I thought I wouldn't drink on that holiday, honestly. Um, and I couldn't not drink. And it was shocking. It was exposed to me, which was such a good thing. I still believe my higher power sent me on that holiday with him. And, you know, the, I could not hide it. He, you know, we shared this little unit up there and, uh, oh, it was just so exposed. And, you know, the last time I ever had a drink, um, we were leaving the next morning and I, and I had, you know, two casks, probably the red and the white cask, and I had some UDL cans and I had some, um, I can't remember what else. And I had to drink it all, didn't I? Because, you know, you don't leave and <laughs> not finish your alcohol. I still have trouble pouring alcohol down the sink. And um, so, you know, I just finished it all. And the next day was going to be the, ver- the date, July the t- 22nd, the date I very originally come into AA and I made a decision that night that I was never that I was going to stop the next day and not drink again so of course I had to you know drink everything and I took a I took a photo of myself that night actually in a mirror to say this is the last night you're drinking and it was a shocking photo I had to destroy it after about a year of sobriety I just couldn't look at it anymore and I had the worst hangover the next day and um, and I just I just thought as soon as I get back I'm going to that women's meeting in Middle Park because I've never been there and I thought I don't have to tell them I've been in and out and in and out of these rooms for six years. I can just go as a newcomer because they don't know me and... Um, you know, that's that's how it'll be. So I came back and it still took me three weeks after I got back to go back to AA. You know, I got into such a point of I felt like I was a failure. I was one of those people the big book refers to as morally <laughs> unable to get the program. And, um, you know, after three weeks, I knew I was going to drink again if I didn't do something about it. I went to the women's group and um, I watched and I picked a woman to be my sponsor because she had what I wanted and I knew I needed a sponsor. I knew I needed to work the program. There was no debate for me anymore. There was no issue. I knew that I was powerless over alcohol and I knew that in spite of all the appearance of my life that it was unmanageable because because I just was absolutely out of control once I was thinking about alcohol. So I went into that meeting and identified as a newcomer and um, it was very warm and I was very welcome and the doors were narrower but I just fitted through and that began this re- the journey for me and it's been a wonderful journey and the difference between doing this sobriety without the program, with just meetings and not many meetings, but without actually working the program 
And the, and the way it is now, when I do work the program and I do give service and I have done all the steps, is incredible. I'm no longer just resisting alcohol at every point. It doesn't, it's not significant in my life anymore. I can safely go where alcohol is. And that's been, um, and that's been the way it's worked for me. So when I sponsor women, I, um, I put a very, very big emphasis on step one because that's part of my journey, you know, so that's what I share. And I actually have a um, steps journal and I recommend that, um, you know, that people get a steps journal and that they write the steps. And so my step one in this journal is written out and what I tell people to write is, and this is just, you know, just me, um, I tell them to write the most horrible, revolting things they remember from their days of drinking. And I tell them to, you know, list the really squirmy things, you know. It, it's, it's good preparation for step four when you're going to do that anyway. But really list the things that they would most hate to go back to. You know, mine talks about the hangovers. It talks about... Um, things that I did that I would think afterwards, I am not that sort of a person. Um, it talks about the way I upset my son's lives, the way my um, younger son used to cry when I started drinking. Mummy, mummy, please don't drink. The way we'd be going somewhere and he would say, can't you just have one drink? Um you know, it just says all those things, the things that I most don't want to go back to because I forgot them. You know, over and over again, I forgot them and I thought that I could pick up a drink and I thought that I could control my drinking and I thought that those things would not happen this time. But they always did and they always got worse. So I put them down in on paper and... My, Especially so in the early days of my sobriety, I read it nearly every night just to remind myself, just to think, that's what I don't want. You know, I don't have to read it often now because my life is so good and lovely now and I'm, you know, I'm so happy that I don't have to fear going back to that. But in the early days, it was terribly important for me. Because I know that even after 22 months, I've, I could forget and choose to go back to that life, you know. I hope I never would now, but if I even have twinges of that sort of thought, I only need to read through the pages of this book and it reminds me of how much I hate it, how much, how awful my life could be in the blink of an eye, in the half a glass Half of a half of a tiny glass, my whole life turned around. So any alcohol is not good. Um, okay, thank you for uh, listening to me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, my name's Robert and I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, I do have the privilege to be able to share here today. And... Um, it's amazing. The last time I stood in front of a place like this with two microphones was the county court in 1990. <laughs> it's a little bit daunting. And I give myself up. But, uh, yeah, um, 
omschrijven de tijd voor mijn associatie met Alcoholics Anonymous en een belief in God. And um, just that statement's amazing. I uh, just a little bit about myself. I uh, picked up a drink at 15, and uh, I had that personality change, and I became violent. And um, at the age of 19, I was jailed because of what happened when I drank, and um, it didn't end there. It went on, and um, I'd heard about Alcoholics Anonymous at a young age, and from whom I can't remember. All I know is that I'd heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I decided that I uh, may have a problem with alcohol. But um, I was young and um, I played sport. I, I regard myself as fit. I was physically well. And um, it's just a bit of fun. But uh, when you're 19 and you you stand in that court and he, uh, the magistrate says, I sent you to jail... The uh, 15-year-old boy came out and um, I was full of fear and I was full of fear before I before that happened but I really knew what fear meant when I knew that as a 15-year-old boy in a 19-year-old bloke's body. But anyway, I uh, got to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1974 and... Um, that was quite a thing in itself. I, I uh, went to this meeting and on, on the, when I walked through the door and I found it, when I finally walked up to the door, there were those plastic uh, or baubles like streamers and I pushed them apart and they banged against the wall and a dozen blokes turned around and looked and I stood there and uh, I know today the, the secretary's name was Mick and this was in Geelong. It was a Friday night in Jeringap Street and um, he said, who are you looking for? And uh, I said, I think you. And he said, are you an alcoholic? I said, I think so. And to the left they had an Al-Anon meeting going and um, the place I was in was the right place. And as I took a couple of steps forward, a bloke took my hand. He's dead today. His name was Forbes. He said, come in and sit down. And uh, that was my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can still remember looking at these uh, banners and uh, saying to myself, what have I got myself into here, for God's sake, or for my sake, or for ever's sake? But this bloke said, uh, just sit down, mate, and do the best you can. Do you want a coffee or a tea? Yeah. And I hadn't had a drink for a couple of days, I remember that. And he gave me a cup of tea, half full. And I thought, that'd be right, half a cup of tea. <laughs> half measures. But anyway, I, I walked out of there and this bloke said to me, what you do, mate, if you're an alcoholic, you don't pick up one drink for one day and you attend meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I believe things will work for you if you can just do that. And um, I did that 
for a couple of weeks. And I felt pretty good. I was getting smarter. And the bloke in the mirror was getting a bit better looking. And who needs Alcoholics Anonymous? You know? I got things to do. And so off I went. And I decided uh, that what I'd do was not drink and just not drink. Who needs to go to Alcoholics Anonymous? You know? And I, I think I was probably the youngest there. So, you know, I thought, me being Einstein, that uh, I'll get there a little bit later. You know, in my 30s, when I'm an old bastard. 30s, 40s. <laughs> so off I went. And um, it wasn't long later that uh, I was in trouble with the booze again, as happens to alcoholics like me, when you continue to drink. And I was in front of a doctor, and the doctor said, what's the problem? I haven't been to work for three or four days. What do you want me to do? I said, I want you to give me one of them little certificates so I can go back to work. Da, 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 da. And he sort of looked at my form, you know, or whatever they call it, the, uh, the times I'd been to see him beforehand. And he said, you, you seem to, to come in here when you've uh, had time off or getting a nose fixed or a jaw fixed or something like that. And he said, uh, maybe alcohol. And... Uh, Maybe he was right. Who knows? And I just said, look, mate, just give us the form and I'll be out of here and back to work tomorrow. Well, one thing he did say, he said, uh, and I used to time my trips to the doctors for nine o'clock, sit in the waiting room for 20 minutes, see the doctor for ten, half an hour later in the bath. That's it. And that's what I'd planned this day. And um, he said to me, do, do you read? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, if you go past the library and you remember, he said, if you go in there, there's a book in there called Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, uh, do yourself a favour, pick it up. He said, open any page you like. If you're an alcoholic, there'll be something in there about you. So off I trundled, walked past the doctors through the park to the library. The Eureka Hotel was about... 300 metres down on the right past the library. I had a bit of time, I'll drop in, I'll grab this book. So I grabbed the book and I walked out and sat out, out the front of the Eureka, it was 5 to 10 of course, a couple of other blokes lobbed and we uh, started reading the big book. And I said, there's you and there's you and look, there's a little bit here about you and you and you. And we took it into the bar and we uh, went through the big book. And I got thrown out and a few of the others got thrown out as well. And uh, to this day, I don't know what happened to that big book. <laughs> might be still in the bar of the Eureka. I might hit him on the head with it when it's time to go. But anyway, that's... Uh, and I was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous and a few other places, and, and it was because I drank. And uh, I'll try to make this as short as I can now. And I was in places such as Griswold, and Pleasant View and Smith Street Clinic, Geelong Hospital, Moravan Hospital, St Vincent's Hospital, Heatherton, and I uh, wasn't there because I couldn't tap dance. And it was all the booze. 
And in all this mayhem and madness, I was the father of a, a son and a daughter. And my son seen all the, the violence, etc. And my daughter seen a little bit of it because I was out of her life by the time she was five. But um, it's quite an amazing thing how, how all these things happen. And what happened was, in all this madness and insanity, I um, managed to keep putting my bum on a seat of Alcoholics Anonymous every now and again when things got too hard. And um, a bloke at the gallery became that uh, closed mouth friend and I used to sit with him sometimes when I was, I'd slowed down a little and uh, I was asked him about the steps and uh, step one admitted we were powerless over alcohol and to be I, I didn't have any idea really what that meant that my life had become unmanageable powerless didn't like that word powerless I'd done alright you know I'd done alright don't worry about that and uh, I said, I have to admit that I'm powerless over alcohol. And when I looked at that, I had to put it in up here. And I said, the booze has got you stuffed. You know? And when the alcohol's in, the logic's out. And he said, no, mate, you go by what's written there. Your work out has got you where you are. Go by what's written there. So I learnt a little bit of it. And I learnt that admitting that I was powerless over alcohol was probably the first first bit of honesty in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I knew nothing about accepting. And I knew my life was unmanageable because people had told me. And gee whiz, they must be right. But I did. I looked back and yeah, Now, to admit and to accept were two things for me and um, I love the word alcoholic. I hated, despised being called a drunk. They were fighting words for me if someone called me a drunk. But when someone one day called me an alcoholic, I thought, that sounds a bit classy. I don't mind this. (laughs) A dirty drunk's no good, but an alcoholic. University. You know? And I thought, well, that's alright, yeah. But I had to sit in meetings and I had to listen and I had to accept that I was an alcoholic and that's what I found the hardest. I found it hard to accept that I couldn't have a drink for the, for the rest of my life. And these people would say to me, no, 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 it's only for today, Rob. And I'd say, yeah, but it's for the rest of my bloody life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it's only for today. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. It's for the rest of my bloody life. That's what it is. But I um, started to understand step one and that, my, that I was powerless over alcohol and this guy said to me, so what you need to do is change everything. The way you think, 
where you go, da-da-da-da-da. And I had to find a power. And um, the power for me then was, was Alcoholics Anonymous because when I sat in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt okay, I slowed down a little. And I knew my life was unmanageable. All I had to do, I, I, I sort of threw it around. I thought, if you don't drink, you go to work. If you don't drink, you've got a couple of bob in your pocket. You know, you don't have to jump trains. You don't have to thieve cars. You can pay your way. You know? These, these are the things you need to do. You have to change. You have to change. And I thought, okay, so I'll select the power, and that became Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I spoke to this bloke again, he said, do you think you've accepted you're an alcoholic? And I said, I do, because when I get up in the morning now, I say, please, God, don't let me have a drink today. And he said, there's your power, mate. There's your power. Where? God. Yeah. Yeah, God's uh, helped me a lot. You know, please God get me out of this. I promise I'll never do it again. Didn't happen. Please God let me win Tats Lotto. Didn't happen. Please God let me steal a good car. Didn't happen. You know, let me get in and out of this place without being pinched. Didn't happen. You know. But, uh, yeah, I found a power and that was over a matter of, uh, over quite some time. In 1994, from 1974 till 1994, in and out of AA, in and out of a few other places, not being able to accept my alcoholism, not looking at it as, as a disease. You know, I mean, I didn't want to have a disease. Jeez, I've been to the quacks a few times with them. You know, these uh, so-called diseases, social disease, I think they were called. <laughs> but uh, this one, you know, it's uh, for the rest of my life. Well, what happened? 1994, my son rings me. Dad, why don't you go back to Alcoholics Anonymous where your real friends are and stop hanging around with these crazy bastards? And he started crying. He said, the alcohol's killing you, Dad. It's killing me and it's killing your daughter. Go back to where your real friends are. A couple of weeks later, I ended up in Heatherton Hospital. I was introduced to Udalangakan Nun and she said... Uh, what we do is have a look at you, you know, where you came from, da 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 da. We went through all that and she said, here's a list of, you know, you've been in trouble in all these areas, you were drunk. Every time you got into trouble, you were drunk. When you fronted the courts, you were drunk. When you thieved, you were drunk. Da 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 da. If you don't drink, she said, I don't believe life will get any better, but you will. And I did. And um, my life's okay. I have a wife now that manages my life. <laughs> well, helps me. And, um, yeah, and I, I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol. I admit that. But I'll tell you what, there's a, there's a power in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and I feel it today and, and I, I was walking up here and I started to shake a bit and it was like going to the county court again. And um, thank God no one's pulled out a pen and paper. I'd be out of here. But, um, yeah, 
or Alcoholics Anonymous is the most important thing in my life. My sobriety is the most important thing in my life today, without exception. And um, I got married in sobriety at the age of 50. I'd never been married before. And uh, I got married on my 50th birthday, so I'd remember the anniversary. (laughs) I got smarter. Um, and my partner's in another fellowship, Al Anon. And, uh, it's just another way of life. Completely different from the way of life I lived. And it's due to this, Alcoholics Anonymous, and a belief in God. And, um, I just keep looking at this step one. And I, I, I try to, I remember someone saying to me, you know, around this show, mate, it's step one and the third tradition, or the third tradition and the first step. And uh, that's what happened with me. But things started to change, and I knew I needed to do other things, and I needed to look at other outside things. I went to a psychiatrist, da-da-da-da-da. But... Um, I'm sort of off the track. I find it very hard sometimes to stay on a on uh, the right line and maybe a little bit of damage somewhere. But um, I just hope that everyone here has a great weekend and um, after me it's got to get better, you know. <laughs> Stick around. And... Um, Look, I'm a very grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous and as I said, it looks like it's going to be a great weekend and uh, I'd like to thank the committee for asking me to share. It's a real privilege. I get up here and waffle on a bit, but gee whiz, some time ago I wouldn't have said a word. It would have been all negative, but um, sometimes the words come and sometimes they don't. But uh, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.